Welcome back to the Voices from the Northeast podcast. This is the last special episode of our two specials for the Christmas and New Year season. And it's actually, by a quirk of luck, going to be the last episode of 2021. So sit back, plug your headphones in and listen to this spooky special. Isn't this a spooky one? It is a spooky one. Welcome to the podcast, people. You know, I was born in North Dean Colliery. I should have remembered that because my mother used to work for them. I'm champion police after all this time. She went flying over me, Paul, into Bustelli. Found in the sand. As I write this down, I'm sat in a small fish shack, looking out at the wild sea. If you know much about the Northumbrian coastline of England, then you will no doubt know the type of place that I speak of. The wind howls, the rain lashes down on the ground, and the waves crash against rocky shores. It's a special kind of beauty in winter. As I think back, It was always so beautiful. I remember that winter so well when I think about it. The sun shone low and heavy in the sky during the day, and at night the moon hung large and pale over the land and the sea. The sea... The sea was beautiful. Dark blue beneath the low sun, which seemed to struggle to pull itself high in the sky in the daytime. And then the waves crested a shimmering silver beneath the moon each night. Beautiful. Then there's the birds, of course. Seagulls calling in the sky. They were so alien to us city boys. Their calls were loud and strange, and their shriek was just so unfamiliar in its tone. We spent a few hours as often as possible, playing on the golden sand of the nearby beaches. My younger brother, Jonathan, and I built sand castles. (laughs) Even in the cold, icy winter weather, we built huge sand castles. With turrets, and windows, and high walls. And then we would set about digging a trench from our castle moat to the incoming sea. The sea along the Northumbrian coast, is cold at any time of year, and if you've ever visited those beautiful beaches, you know that. Yet somehow, with the low sun on its surface, it warms enough for children to mind the cold a little bit less than adults, especially when the sea is something you've only ever seen in pictures before. As the water rippled along our makeshift trench, I remember we watched it bounce and splash over the rough sand, until it swirled around our castle. We played with the water-wrapped castle for less than an hour, of course, in that cold air, just until the sown wind and the biting icy cold air came in from the sea and proved too much to bear even for us hardy boys. 
Our guardians, who had sat together with a hot flask of tea while we played, started packing up and we were given only a few moments left with our sand creation. The water retreated from our castle before we left the beach, and as we investigated the smooth moat that it had left behind, I can remember we saw seashells and stones that had either come from the sea or had been beneath the sand waiting to be exposed all that time. There was one stone that seemed to catch our eye even in the fading sunlight of that afternoon. Jonathan saw it first and pointed it out to me, and of course we saw no harm in picking it out of the sand. But perhaps, in hindsight, we would have been wiser to leave it buried within its tomb in the sand. It wasn't a stone, we discovered that when we pulled it out. It was bigger than we expected, and it was lodged firmly within the grasp of the sand, as if the beach didn't really want to give it up. But you know what boys are like? When we want something, we can find the strength we need. Only a few moments later, and we were sat sheltering in a sand dune, admiring our discovery. It was, so we thought, a smooth stone with a thick side and a thinner, larger opposite edge. It was a, perhaps the size of a large man's hand with their fingers outsplayed. Strangely, it immediately seemed important to us. You know, the way a perfectly shaped stick in the woods is, or the conker that you absolutely must carry home from a long walk. And being the older brother, I wrapped it in my jacket for safekeeping, and we came back to our lodgings without letting our guardians know of it. If you've ever stayed on the northern coast of England, or indeed if you live there, then you know that the night falls fast and dark on the coastline in December. That darkness is a thing of its own as well. It's silent, yet tangible. If you've ever been there, you know what I mean. It takes you a few minutes to adjust, for your senses to pick out and replace the sounds that remain, like the soft roll and breaking of waves, or the ticking of a clock. Sounds which you know didn't stop, but somehow the darkness momentarily displaces. And in those years, the night fell darkest. At night, my younger brother and I would sit inside the little cottage where we were billeted with our guardians, the Joneses, Mr and Mrs Jones, both in their fifties, both wonderfully caring souls who'd grown boys of their own that had fought and sadly died in the first few months of this, our country's darkest hours. Mr Jones was a fisherman from a family of fisher folk, and he knew all the small ways down and onto the beach that we could visit safely. You see, the public at large were banned from the beautiful beaches, where once tourists had flocked in their hundreds and thousands, and they do so now, many of the beaches being labelled areas of outstanding natural beauty now. The promenade, once a beautiful white marvel, was now wrapped in the thickest, blackest, sharpest wire to discourage visiting the beach for anything less than work or rescue. But we were lucky, you see, my brother and I, our guardians, knew that we'd never seen the sea before, 
ever heard the rolling crashing waves or the call of the seagulls. So they showed us all the little hidden waves onto the beach and they would take us there as often as they could, even when winter was biting sharply. Somewhere in the distance that night, we heard the drone of coming planes. Those huge planes that came almost every night rarely caused any problem near with. Though it wasn't that long since they'd bombed and destroyed a shipyard just a few miles away, and a sea mine had even drifted this way causing some damage once. But thankfully, for now, the village was as safe a place as it could be. It was certainly safer here than in London, which is why we were here. My brother and I were here to be safe until we could return to the city and hopefully both our parents. That night, after supper, my brother and I went up to our bedroom, a cosy little attic room that had been cleared and made habitable just for us. It was rather lovely when I look back on it now. Two small beds, bedside drawers, shared wardrobe, an old chest by a single window and a window seat full of toys that had once belonged to their own boys, and they told us to treat them and indeed the house as if it was our own. Unlike many other children of that time, Jonathan and I counted ourselves very lucky, for the most part, to have been billeted with such kind northern folk. That night, I remember, for the first time in a long time, there was no moon. Which was a blessing, Mrs Jones had said, because it kept visibility low at night. The clouds acted like a blanket, hiding and protecting the village from the evil that came from the sky. Upstairs, Jonathan and I sat in our room and talked out our day. Eventually our conversation came to that of our discovery and what an unusual shape the stone was. I mean, we theorised so many things, from it being a Viking axe head to a Roman dagger corroded over time. I slipped off my bed and went to collect it from within the fold in my jacket. In the darkness of our room at night, I could only feel it and try and make sense of it that way. In my hand, it certainly no longer felt like a stone. It felt colder and heavier. And I would swear to this day that it made my hand and my fingers tingle. Like you do when you touch that device that makes your hair stand on end in science museums. I gave it to Jonathan but he felt nothing, other than the shapes and the patterns that seemed to either have been carved into the item or weathered into it by time. Tired and unable to do much in the darkness of our room, with the blackout cloth in place over the window, we made ourselves comfortable and I stored our treasure beneath my pillow, and we slept. I wish now that I could more fully remember the dreams that I had that night, for I know I had dreams. And they might have some bearing on what followed, but sadly, I don't remember them clearly. At best, I remember a sense of the dreams. I remember a voice, deep and cold. A voice that, I believe, spoke directly to me, from somewhere beyond the sea. I remember standing on a beach 
in darkness, the icy cold wind having dropped away to nothing. And the waves were crashing white and then fell silent as well. And then this voice from the sea spoke to me. But to try and say it any more would be pointless. And I, I wouldn't be being honest with you if I tried to make something up. It was a very long time ago now. And what I have said is what I best remember of that night. So we'll leave it there. And you can think of that what you will. When morning came, we were both boys more interested in filling our bellies than investigating a hidden relic. So our curious find remained beneath my pillow and my brother and I tucked into the usual hearty breakfast. Later in the morning though, we were looking for things to occupy us, and I remember we sought out the relic, and then sat out on the front step to examine it further. We concluded that it was an axe head. We had no idea how old obviously, but it certainly looked as though once the thinner curved edge might have been the sharper curve, and therefore the front of an axe head. The markings, which appeared to be cut into it, were deep and deliberate scratched lines, some crossing each other, making strange patterns. They might have been deliberately done so I suppose, but neither my brother or I were smart enough to really know that at the time. Though, since then, I've seen a great many examples of them. Around midday, as we sat in our duffel coats, lightly warmed by a low sun in the afternoon, Mr Jones came out and sat with us, and his eye was drawn very quickly to our relic. Oh my goodness, what a find, he said, taking us by surprise. Wherever did you find an axe head like that? I passed the thing to him and watched as his eyes widened, and he turned it over in his hand and ran his fingers carefully all over the axe head. Where did you find it? the man asked us. Jonathan explained our discovering it the day before. Mr Jones smiled and let out a sigh of great excitement. <sighs> My goodness, what a thing to just find in the sand. I couldn't help but ask if his delight meant that he knew what it was, and he did indeed. And he knew what those markings were. Mr Jones told us that it was, so he believed, an axe head, and that the markings were an ancient writing known as runes. He couldn't read them himself, but he recognised them, and he knew a man who was very interested in local history at the local church on the seafront who he believed could possibly divine their meaning. And so, that gave the remains of our day some structure and purpose. Brother and I went with Mr Jones in search of answers. The small but solid church of St Mary's is an ancient church. I wouldn't be surprised if it has a line or two in the Doomsday Book. And it itself, it's built on a site where Saxons and Viking raiders fought over the land for countless bloody years. It's an impressive church. It stands at the furthest point 
of a large sweeping bear. The churchyard then sweeps from the church all around its four walls with some plots facing the sea. The church point, as it's known, is the highest point in the bay as well, which gives the church a dominant position looking over the village, and it towers defiantly over the sea. When we arrived, we put our bicycles up against the old stone wall and walked the small path through the churchyard to the entrance, which was on the side of the church facing the sea. An aged old vicar in his black robes, which were billowing around his legs even in the lightest wind, met us at the entrance of the church, where he was cleaning the door and replacing some small greenery that seemed to have come loose from a pretty wreath that was hung upon it for the festive season. Wrexham was his name, Mr Wrexham. He gave the most boring Sunday services. Not that I think many boys found Sunday service interesting or inspiring, but there was always such an angry passion of righteousness in his sermons, which made one feel that there was little worth in trying to do any good, as we were all already doomed sinners in his book. We let Mr Jones go first. He and the old vicar had words beneath the canopied entrance to the church, and after a few moments, both of the men waved for us to come into the warmth of the church with them. It was and is a beautiful old church. Well, not that I thought that back then, of course. I was young. Old churches were not really of much interest to me or my brother. But I've been back since, and I can appreciate its grand beauty. It's stained glass, and of course, as I grow old, I can respect even more now how it's fought the ravages of time, held its ground against that ever-encroaching sea at its edge. The old vicar led us to the middle of the echoey stone church, where there was a standing stone font used for christenings. Covering the bowl, which would have been filled with holy water for those occasions, was a flat wooden plate, onto which the old man laid out our discovery to examine it. I must admit, he gave it all the care he likely gave a child that he would normally christen there. My, my, my. You were not wrong. What a find! He exclaimed as his eyes widened and he examined it under a stream of golden sunlight that came in through the window, perfectly striking the plinth. He fixed a pair of half spectacles onto his nose and he leaned in closer like a jeweller inspecting the rarest diamond. And he began to mutter to himself, being completely drawn into his work. And quite quickly, the vicar seemed to forget we were even there. We stood in that church watching him, listening to him, muttering to himself. The echo of his muttering quietly reverberating around the ancient stone church. Though, the strangest thing, the echoes of his words, which weren't particularly audible as words, seemed to come back longer as if rather than the echoes of his words, they were the whispers of somebody else's. Of course, there was only the four of were in the church, so my young mind paid that very little attention. At one point, he disappeared into the back room of the church, 
through a velvet curtain which was draped over a thick wooden door to fetch a huge book to help him decipher the markings that were etched into its surface. I say book, but from what I remember seeing of it, it resembled a huge diary or scrapbook, leather bound with faded and delicately old pages. There were drawings and loads of handwriting across the pages in several different hands, as if it was the kind of book that people had kept for many decades and added to, like they'd been working on some long shared project. The old man seemed to be very much engrossed in his work. I remember him turning to Mr. Jones and almost accusingly asking, You're quite sure the boys found this? By chance. It was not given to them. And Mr. Jones seemed a little bit surprised at the old man's tone. He looked at us and then back at the old vicar. I'm quite sure they found it while building a sandcastle, not that far up the beach from where the churchyard ends. The vicar slowly shook his head and pressed a considered finger against his bottom lip and very softly said, So, so close all this time. Can you read the words? Jonathan suddenly asked. The vicar turned from his thoughts to look at us, and when he did, his face wasn't the friendly one that we'd met at the door. It seemed strained angry and even fearful but he answered Jonathan I can he looked at the axe head and ran his fingers over the markings and then he read aloud their meaning I won't pretend to remember the exact words for he spoke a language that none of us knew but him as he spoke each word though the sunlight that at first had streamed through the window seemed to shrink away. The church grew colder, the sun fading faster, and I swear the three of us stood listening all felt the temperature in the church drop. After he spoke the foreign words, he spoke their meaning in English, perhaps for us or for his own edification, I don't know. If I am taken, they will search for me, when I am found, they will avenge me. My brother asked the obvious question, Who's there? And the vicar seemed to sway for a moment, as if the earth beneath his feet had just suddenly moved, a wave travelling through it. With the sun fading though, it quickly seemed to be a shadow crossing his face. Then, returning his attention to the three of us, with a clap of his hands. There? I have no idea. He forced a smile across his face. He turned to Mr. Jones and continued in a light, breezy and untruthful tone. This is certainly ancient, but um, I'm not convinced it's particularly valuable. However, I'll add it to our collection of curiosities from the area's history, if you wish. He held Mr. Jones's gaze, waiting for a reply. Mr. Jones looked at my brother and I, then back to the eager vicar, and agreed on our behalf. And with that, we left the church, and stepped back outside into a much colder outside than what we had entered from earlier. The sky was now grey and cloud-filled where it had been blue, and the seagulls, 
seemed to have flown down to shelter from some storm that perhaps only they knew was coming. The air, the sky and the mood felt very different. As we made our way back to the gate at the end of the churchyard and our bicycles, I spotted a weathered gravestone marker that was leaning at an obscure angle towards the path. It wasn't an upright gravestone like the rest of those in the churchyard were. It was laid across the ground, with four others in a line next to it and close to the wall of the church. There was no marking on any of them, and no name, no cross. It looked as if there'd never been, rather than there'd been something worn away by time. But what had drawn my eye to them wasn't their emptiness. It was the fact that they lay at odd angles, as if they'd been affected by some land movement. One of the stones was even cracked right down the middle, and the other three were all leaning towards the path, as if a giant mole had had the misfortune to attempt to reach the surface beneath each one of them, one after the other. I remember pointing it out, and asking if such stones would be corrected to save them from further damage. Mr Jones frowned. I remember that he paused and looked at the stones before answering me. These stones, he pointed across those that were there at angles, they're all Viking grave markers. No one will touch them. Weren't Vikings buried at sea or burnt or something? I was sure I'd been taught that at school. Mr. Jones sighed. <sighs> Sad tale attached to those. So I was told when I was a little one anyway. These were Vikings who ransacked the village here, terrorised the area for years. Until one day, a, a monk, or a group of monks, I'm not entirely certain, was said to have done a deal with the devil himself to rid the land of them. Apparently, the monk sold his soul, or that of his family, I'm not 100% sure on that bit either. Anyways, the sea became wild that very night, and all these Vikings and their ships were washed up onto the shore the next day. As a final reckoning, the monk had them buried against their own traditions here, so they'd be trapped beneath the Northumbrian soil for all eternity. They even used the wood from the boats to build the great door, the entrance of the church, and I think a few pews inside as well. Jonathan looked at the uneven ground and the stones. Doesn't look like they've stayed put. <laughs> we laughed and we continued on our way home. But I suppose had we been wiser, had we understood the vicar's words and the worry on his face inside that church, we wouldn't have laughed so loudly or so easily. The next day was the second Sunday before Christmas. So, dressed in our cleanest shirts and pressed trousers, and of course our thickest coats, we were in fact headed back to church for Sunday service. A crowd had gathered at the church in the morning, most were the regular flock, but as we approached the large group that was gathered in the doorway and then spilling down the path to the gate, we noticed that many were not really dressed for church. Something had drawn a crowd, 
and it certainly wasn't the impending sermon. As the two of us boys made our way through the crowd, Mr and Mrs Jones, I can remember hearing snippets of the crowd's conversations. Taken off in the night, I was told. I saw shadows in the yard when I took the dog out for its walk. Not a sound or anything, but I saw great big shadows. Could be a symbol, as he's taken sick, you know. Is the curse. His line were always going to be done for in the end. At the door of the church, the curate, a tired, grey man who was almost impossibly thin, had thin hair and a thin, sharp nose, was stood stony-faced. He preempted Mr. Jones's question by raising a finger and speaking quickly just as we approached. He's not here. No idea where he is. Church was locked when I got here and it's still locked now. Nay vicar, nay service. It was useless to ask anything else because the curate was clearly not going to answer any more questions and was sick of answering those he'd been asked. I remember looking mostly at the door and noticing that it was covered in marks like gouges made by something sharp and strong. There were splinters of the wood on the stone floor and the door, well, the pretty wreath that had been on the door was no longer pretty. It being once again messy, much of its greenery on the floor, scattered around. We made our way back down along the thin church path through the crowd. The gawping gathering was thinning now, and the loudest of the group were making their way back into town, back to the local pub, with some heading to their homes. One thing I remember very clearly though, my brother pulled at my elbow and then slightly nodded his head to point my attention to the right of our path, to the nameless Viking grave markers that we'd observed and discussed the day before. The flat, straight, well-preserved, on smooth ground, flat, even and undisturbed grave markers. As they had most certainly been for several hundreds of years before we'd visited them the day before. I don't believe anyone ever saw the vicar again, even in the parish records, which I've discreetly checked, he's simply recorded as having left St Mary's Church for pastures not known. My brother and I were returned home to London two years later, and our darkest hours gave way to brighter days. By the grace of God, we were returned to our mother and our father, and a changed but not broken city, which we could rebuild our lives in. After the war, we began to holiday as a family, and we came back up north. I think my brother and I had spoken so fondly about our time here that our parents wished to see the place and thank the Joneses. The meeting of the Joneses and our parents was joy-filled. Firm friendships were formed until the ends of their days. And a good many years later, I married a local lass and I came up here to live, just a mile from the coast. I have a family of my own now, children and grandchildren, and we often pass the church when we walk along the coast. Just this week, 
I took up an invitation to attend the church's new Christmas Eve carol service. They have a new vicar, who seems very keen to do things like that now. I met the young vicar as my family entered through the old entrance. A young, dark-haired man with a short, neatly trimmed beard. And he introduced himself as a Mr Wrexham. And he told me that he came from a long line of clergy in his family who, most of them, it seemed by some quirk, had been vicar at this church. After the service, which was by far the warmest and most pleasant service I've ever attended in that church, or any other, I took the path to the gate through the well-kept churchyard, while my son and his wife and their children talked with their friends at the church entrance. Those grave markers are still there, still lying there on flat, undisturbed earth. Though like me, they're a little more weathered now. Thank you for listening to our spooky special, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you very much to everyone that has listened to the podcast since we started, which was only just in January 2021. We're about to move into 2022. Let's hope the good times are ahead. Take care, everybody, and Happy New Year. Do you want to say Happy New Year? Happy New Year!